Hello and welcome to our weekly Fire and Blood live streams. It's History of Westeros back again. It's uh, it's 2K19, as you can see on my shirt. Uh, Shay also has Game of Owns represented. Zach Louie uh, of Game of Owns is in town helping us do some recording, helping us produce our Blood Raven 3 episode. Yeah, he brought his very cool red camera and all of his microphones and is recording it for us. So in 4K, I think we're going to downscale it to 1080p, but it'll still look very nice. Yeah, I'm we've already recorded the intro and the outro, which you did a little something different for, so... Yeah, we should be getting that done within the next five, six days. We'll see how, how that goes, as always. But uh, it's getting close, very close. But today, we are going to talk the Hour of the Wolf and the Pact of Ice and Fire and Cregan Stark and a lot of these other cool characters that are involved in that particular episode of both pre- and post-Dance of the Dragons. So that's a lot of, a lot of great stuff to talk about. A lot of fantastic parallels included there as well, as always. And we have an excellent guest with us today, Nina Friel. Say hello. Uh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> good to I have am, you. Uh, I, good, to, good to be here. Yeah. So tell everybody where to find you, what you've been working on, and uh, give us just your high and low, like two minute version of what you think of fire and blood and all that so five far. Second. Well, that's not going to be in five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I already put you already given you a big challenge. That was your first yeah. question. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, my name is Nina. I write on Tumblr, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. I answer asks and I write posts and I very occasionally write essays and I even more infrequently write Shakespeare style history plays about the Targaryens and uh, every Wednesday I do house words Wednesdays where I take a house that doesn't have words and I give them words so a little bit of everything on Tumblr right on yeah I like the house words Wednesdays those are cool because there are a lot of houses without words and uh, there have been over this has been going on for like three years I've done wow. it for so <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> so how have you have you ever gotten like really close to what the actual words were when they've been revealed later a couple of times so like that? The only time I started this back in 2016, the only time, the only words we've gotten since then are my farming words, mm. which are nowhere near. Okay. Like yeah. Farming words were. It would be cool if you actually nailed words? it. What, Do that? you count the house fray words? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess Not that one's unofficial. In the book, yeah. Then, then I'll count them. Okay. okay. Uh, super chat from Mara Lee. Cats rule. Love your channel and the content. You both rock. Thanks, Mara. I think uh, maybe we should unleash the cats at the beginning of the episode more often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, uh, thanks to our patrons. We have Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, history of Westeros' first sword. And our dragon writers, we have Telenius the Talon, king of Gagasos, writer of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. And we have Robert IV of House Ardeacor, burned king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, the black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers, and a banded blue tail. We've talked about dragons quite a lot in our Fire and Blood coverage. In fact, that's what we did all of last week. But not much dragon talk today, but there will be a little bit because of the Pact of Ice and Fire, you know. <laughs> they, they always sneak in there somewhere. <laughs> Those dragons, I tell you. For, for really large animals, they, they are able to squeeze in very tiny spaces. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get into the main bit here. We are, are still preparing. Um, we have a sea snake episode that we're preparing that we were thinking was going to be soonish, but we're going to move it a couple weeks out. A lot of artwork is being prepared for it. Really, a, a huge amount of artwork is being prepared just for yeah. it. So 
we want to make sure there's plenty of time for that. By Drafturgy, at Drafturgy on Twitter, which you probably heard in the previous weeks us talking about that. But you'll get to see that, you know, next month. That's right. So right now, we next week's episode is TBA because we're moving a few things around. But we'll announce that shortly after this episode comes out. Also, I want to announce there is a Game of Thrones board game official tournament survey that we would like to share with y'all. It comes from Amin of a podcast of Ice and Fire. He's mm-hmm. trying to get the game a bit more traction. And with enough people answer the survey, that will uh, encourage... Um, more tournaments uh, to be held. And you can see that link on your screen, or if you're on YouTube, you can just look at the YouTube description and click the link. Or if you're in the live chat right now, you can click the link I put there. You have many options for how to get to this survey. And if you're listening on the podcast uh, afterwards, which we always put up on Acast, then you can, we'll put the link in the description for that as well. So a lot of different ways to find it. And you should be able to find it on our social media as well, or through a podcast of Mice and Fire social media. Infinite ways. Today, of course, we're going to, as always, do our parallel lives. But, yeah, I got kind of ridiculous with this one because we're not actually (laughs) going to do parallel lives this time. We're going to do parallel lives. It did make me laugh when I saw the document, I have to say. I I, I thought it was good. I believe what I texted you is, I can never trust you again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was something like that, yes. George has played with all the different, with the word, the name Sarah, and uh, we've got S-A-R-A, we've got S-A-R-R-A, we've got S-E-R-R-A, we've got S-A-E-R-A, so yeah, we're going to talk about them a bit too. (laughs) But we'll start off in the north. We have uh, the official art of Cregan Stark from Doug Wheatley here talking Mm -hmm. to young Aegon III. It really looks like a father and son thing, but that is not his son. (laughs) (laughs) That is not his kid. Although he is an Aegon III. Aegon III is a John parallel. And Cregan, maybe not a Ned parallel, but there's some Ned vibes. Sure looks like Ned there. He does look like like the Stark, doesn't he? (laughs) Okay, so yeah, Cregan was born in a 108 and he's the son of Rickon, so we've got another Rickon, and his first son is going to be named Rickon, so there's lots of Rickons going around. And Lady Gillian Glover, whom we know nothing about, uh, <laughs> other than when she other than she died before all this. <laughs> he became Lord of Winterfell at 13 in the year 121. His uncle Bernard took over as regent and kind of held on to power, and then Cregan kind of managed to overthrow him. In a scene that kind of reminds, is kind of foreshadowing for what he's going to do at King's Landing later, bringing in his men and throwing in, throwing the, uh, these, this sort of usurper in, in prison. Not exactly what he does in the South, but it's kind of a similar type of move. Uh, and then he marries Ara Nori. That's his first wife, and, but she dies in 128, which is right before all this Hour of the Wolf business, or right before the Pact of Ice and Fire and the Dance of the Dragons and all that kicks off. So that's our initial setup. So... Nina, why don't you tell us a little bit about this, uh, th- these couple of years before the pact and some other stuff about the North and um, about Cregan? Absolutely. Well, you know, specifically in terms of Aranori, you know, not, not that I'm super thrilled that we get another woman who dies in childbirth in Fire and Blood. Yeah, lots of those. <laughs> you know, that's an issue. But pretty much all we know about her is that she's sort of a beloved childhood companion of Cregan. But I think what's interesting and and what we can get in this chapter is we can kind of take away what Cregan might have liked about Ara and what what she was like based on what Cregan likes about uh, other women. So Hmm. 
with with the Noris, you know, the Noris are obviously one of the northern mountain clans, so they're living in the very, very far, far part of the north. And the Noris in particular are the ones who are living closest to the gift. Um, this is, you know, we learn this in A Dance with Dragons. So even though the Noris are still aristocrats, they're still nobles in terms of their social rank, they live a kind of almost more tribal sort of sort of nobility. It's very much a more kind of almost primal. It's, you know, the Nori is not Lord Nori, he's the Nori. And they live in kind of a more, uh, again, a, a sort of a more tribal existence when it comes to the nobility of the North. And I think, you know, one of the things I talked about with respect to the Mormont women, and I think it carries over with, with the Noris and the other Hill clans, is... The reason I think we don't see as much practicing of kind of traditional feminine ways or traditional feminine roles among the Mormons is there's simply not room for it. Every day is a matter of survival. You know, Bear Island life is hard. And I think that's just as, if not more true in the Northern Mountains. Winter is going to hit hard there. Resources are going to be scarce there. There's no time to kind of have women be, oh, they're too weak. They can't do anything. Put them to the side. It's all hands on deck or nobody nobody survives. But with the Noris in particular, and again, I think this is a good comparison to the Mormons, the Mormons have lived for centuries with this idea of, you know, any day the ironborn can come, they will kill and they will take you off into slavery. Mm -hmm. So you have to know how to fight because you you're going to have to do it eventually. With the Noris, I think the Noris live closest to the gift. And even though the Night's Watch was at a greater strength at this point than we see it in the main novels, it's still I think wildling raids were still a thing. There's yeah. still this fear that wildlings are going to come in. And we know that there's precedent for wildlings carrying off these Southern women and taking, <laughs> them, taking them beyond the wall. So I could see where there was this thought among the Noris of, yeah, we're going to train women to know how to fight back because you never know when a wildling is going to come and carry you off. You have to be able to defend yourself. Right on. And, you know, the way that Cregan, obviously he falls in love with Alisanne Blackwood and he likes her specifically because, as he says, he smells of wood smoke, not of flowers. She, she's this warrior. He can defend herself. She stands up for herself. He likes Bela when she defends the men who, you know, saved her uh, from Aegon II. He takes out a sword and says, you know, you're not over my dead body. Are you going to arrest them? And he likes this. He smiles at this and says, okay, then you can keep them. I think Cregan liked the idea of a woman who could defend her Herself, who wasn't afraid to take up a sword and say, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight for for what's right." And I think, in a way, Aranori was probably very similar to this. That's probably our first example in this episode, besides the brief mention of Ned, of something that's definitely likely to happen in the books that we haven't seen yet: is the North arming women to fight, well, oh, winter yeah. and the, the the undead and all that. And uh, yeah, it's a good point about Cregan and and uh, liking these tough women because it seems to be the only thing. I think that is a <laughs> comparison he has with Ned in some way, and with Liana and Arya. Yes, obviously. it's yeah, a soft spot. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it, it may not be coincidence that her name is Ara, which sounds a lot like Arya. Yeah, coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> and as we'll see later, he has a uh, he has a daughter named Rhea. Mm -hmm. Which is Arya, an anagram for Arya, and also happens to be one of George's assistants. Yeah, the, and Rhea Golden is the person who's doing the art for that new Starport graphic novel, and that's who uh, Rhea Stark is named after. That's Ooh, right. Very fun little fact. So there's Ara and Arya and Rhea and all these little uh, <laughs> versions of that kind of similar name there. <laughs> now you're going to have Arallels. <laughs> yeah, Arallels. Oh my God. Nice. <laughs> that's true. We are going to have Arallels. <laughs> so yeah, uh, let's see. Moving on, we have. Of course, a key factor in the Dance of the Dragons was loyalty to either Rhaenyra or uh, Aegon II. And 
a lot of that loyalty was based on whether, you know, the, the prior lords had knelt to Rhaenyra at the Great Council so long ago. Now, so many of these lords had died out because that was, what was that, 106? I don't remember the date, but I think it was 106-ish. And the dance didn't break out till 23-ish years later. 105. So, 105, okay, close enough. Um, so 24 years, or 24 years later. And that by then, a lot of those lords and ladies had died off, so they felt that their pledge wasn't you know they didn't have to abide by their father or mother's pledge but lord cregan well you know he was in a position of power being a, a high lord and he was able to use that a bit for bargaining i could say as well as um for um positioning his house for future gain as well but let's take a few questions that came up in between that before we move on to the pact of ice and fire from uh anime, anime. lover nicole I have a direwolf question. Did the Starks own direwolves before they died out below the wall? Your thoughts? Good question. I don't know about regularly, but yeah. there's probably been some. Yeah, they've got like kennels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the direwolf kennels. Yeah, I don't know. No, they probably did. No, that's that makes sense. They do have. Uh, I wonder if they would tame direwolves back in the day without skin changing, and the occasional mm-hmm. skin changing may have happened. Yeah, I wonder if it, it if. It ever happened to someone who wasn't a skin changer or maybe i mean i still think that they even if they weren't full on you know that they still had some little bit of a connection to them that would have made it easier yeah what do you think nina you know i because I, I was thinking about this and i was thinking you know obviously direwolves are pretty rare now so that's one question is how common were direwolves ever that this would even have been an option but two i think it was probably, for me, I would think it only probably would have happened if there was that skin tender connection. Because, I mean, direwolves are huge, first of all, and they're obviously pretty fierce. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, all the trouble of kind of trying to tame a regular wolf. And then on top of that, you've got, <laughs> you know, a, a much bigger animal. So if there's a skin tender <laughs> connection, maybe. But I wouldn't say it was any kind of regularity. Yeah, I, I will yeah. say that uh, Gregory Namath points out in the chat, why would it be their sigil if they didn't? And, well, yeah, I mean, maybe there was... At long past, a particular set of Stark that also had dire wolves, but it wasn't, like you said, regular enough, but that it was known that they had done that yeah, before. Well, we, we have a lot of animal sigils on. Yeah, it's true, it's, but, but I mean, the Lannisters owned lions. Yeah, it's true. Fair. Um, there is usually some sort of connection yeah, there to is the a animal, some sort but it doesn't connection. have to be skin changing, I suppose. No. Broken King asks, how do you see Aegon III as a person? For me, he was one of the most interesting and well-written figures of Fire and Blood. Yes, I think we're going to mostly focus on him. He's going to get his own episode, yeah. basically. Um, so we'll we'll save a lot of the greater detail for that. But I do agree. I think he's yeah. really interesting. And it's an, it's also worth mentioning in terms of Cregan Stark. Mm-hmm. Cregan uh, pushed at least one or two things that Aegon didn't want him to do. And yeah. Cregan listened, which was unlike a lot of the other regions, as tough and as overbearing as Cregan was, he actually listened to the king, unlike, say, Unwin Peak and uh, some of these other characters. Well, Unwin. Mm-hmm. Saying Unwin didn't listen is an understatement. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Obviously... I will know even more about Aegon as a person when Fire and Blood Part Two comes out. Yes. Um, so there right. is that, but in terms of him as a as a child and a teen, I I really think he's such an interesting character just because of the like depression and PTSD that he's battling and that they they show there and they I, I don't think George makes it crazy overt or anything like that. Like you don't see exactly like the full extent, but it makes you wonder about, you know, what sort of night terrors he really probably had and like mm. it was probably 
even more extreme than we see in Fire and Blood, I would guess. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, at some point he seems to maybe get over it because, it, you know, we read about how he's just like, no, he doesn't even want the egg. He doesn't even want Viserys' egg around. And later he yeah. does actually apparently try to hatch the dragon. So he must, he clearly changes his mind over time. But it's a really interesting idea to have a, a dragon king who's traumatized by dragons. That's just a cool concept for for a plot element mm -hmm. you know so yeah mm -hmm. I, I like that a lot steven stark says super chat is 666 for a shade because she is the best you can't have any aziz this is for the queen yeah. all right well okay. i can't argue with that well <laughs> probably not 66 cents because google takes their cut yeah. <laughs> you win this round <laughs> Uh, from Stannis Baratheon, interesting. From Stannis is asking, could Cregan truly take Storm's End, Hightower, and The Rock? How could he even accomplish such a feat? I really, I just want to say how much I'm cracking up just at the idea of actually Stannis Baratheon, like <laughs> him, like thinking about this and asking his maester, like, could Cregan Stark do this? Yeah, this is twelve-year-old Stannis asking. He's like, it's like he's like doubting his maester. Yeah, that's that's exactly. He's Maester Crescent was telling him this. As he's like, Cregan couldn't have taken. I don't know that he could have. I mean, maybe he could have over a long time i mean storm's end has never been taken really uh hightower uh, not that we know i mean high, the you know old town's been invaded before but i'm not sure that the hightower's been taken the rock certainly hasn't so i have my doubts <laughs> i definitely have my doubts but he was definitely game to try it seems like i, I believe him when he was saying, saying he was willing to try what do you think, Nina? Do you think that was uh, you know <laughs> just talk? Was he just trying to be like? No, know? I think I think he was genuine. I think he genuinely meant to do it. Did he think he could win? I I have no idea. But I think I think it didn't matter to him. I yeah. think that it was a sort of thing of if if we die, then we die. But we're gonna die doing it. Mm, yeah, and he's twenty one, so it's possible. Like just like we saw with Ned's army, or rather Rob's army, when it's marching down the neck, and they see the twins. And great John Umber and Roose Bolton and all these guys just look at the defenses and they're kind of stunned and, and they think, oh, man, we're not going to. And it's kind of like, wow, have these guys really not seen the twins before? <laughs> and I guess maybe not. Uh, it's possible they hadn't. It's possible they took a different route when they were going to King's Landing to fight in the rebellion and they haven't really been there any other time. It's entirely possible. Cregan being 21 at this point almost certainly wasn't around, or is he 20, not 21, like 23-ish, whatever. No, he is 21, beginning of the dance. So during the era of the Wolf, he's 23, 24. That's what I was thinking of. Anyway, so that- So he, young. Yeah, very young. He, he almost certainly hadn't seen the South. He doesn't yeah. necessarily know Casterly Rock is, you know, it's wild wow. to think to me that when he was Hand of the King, during the hour of the Wolf, he was younger than I am. <laughs> I guess I'm here, and it's just like when you think about it, it also like Ned Stark. Like I often think of him as so old because of Game of Thrones, because of like Sean Bean. But when you actually think about his age, he's like 36. You know, yeah. when he dies, oh, which yeah. is younger than you. Like it's yeah. just crazy. It's, it is. That's the age Aegon <laughs> yeah. the Third dies, and we think of him as having a long life because he became yeah. king. But he died at 36. Yeah. He had a bunch of kids. He was king, <laughs> but 36 of of tuberculosis too, of all things. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, is unusual that we have a Targaryen dying of kind of a regular sounding yeah. disease. But mm, it's also mm -hmm. right at the beginning of the magic drive, dropping off period. So maybe that's related. It's also not really on topic. So we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> so the pact. Let's talk about the pact. Now, this is, of course, when you use the word pact and the word ice and fire in the same sentence, it's like, whoa, that's like a whole bunch of different theories you're referencing all at once there, buddy. So... It, it definitely sets off some alarm bells, and of course, indeed, it does have a lot of parallels. It starts with Jacarys Valerian coming up, flying north. He stops off in White Harbor and then heads to Winterfell. The deal, 
officially is that Cregan's son Rickon is going to marry an as yet unborn daughter of Jacarys and Bela. And you know the term. What would what do you use a term like that for? What do you? What, what, that's another way we can phrase this 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 promise. <laughs> a princess <laughs> that was promised. A prince that was promised. Hello. Okay. So we're we're getting somewhere here. And but the unofficial version told by Mushroom is is that Jace. Jacarys fell in love with a girl named Sarah Snow, who is supposedly Cregan Stark's bastard sister. Bastard sister, hello. Maybe not bastard in terms of Lyanna, but that's uh, definitely gives Lyanna <laughs> vibes. And that because he slept with her and got married in secret, which there you go, more R plus L equals J feels. This was kind of amends for doing that in a sense that the deal came around because because of this. Now the problem with this theory, or the problem with Mushroom's accounting, is he wasn't there. But it, it almost doesn't matter if it's true, because George wrote it in there, and it makes us think about all these parallels. So whether or not it really happened is interesting. But regardless, he's wanting us to think of these parallels, this R plus L equals J stuff. It's very foreshadowy. Nina, what do you think about all this? It's 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 quite a lot to to drop into one little uh, little <laughs> it, anecdote. It is. And it's something that I think is definitely there, even if it didn't happen. And, you know, George R. Martin has said that, you know, he, he's dropped red herrings as much as he's dropped foreshadowing into, into fire and blood. So even if it didn't happen, I think the intention is definitely to get us to think about this, to think about a Stark Targaryen union and a child being born of that union. Even if, you know, obviously, I don't think personally that this happened because it doesn't really make a lot of sense is why Jacaris would agree to marry his daughter to Rickon, his daughter by Bela to Rickon, if he and Cregan both know that he's actually married to Sarah. Like, yeah. <laughs> They're agreeing to polygamy. Yeah, that doesn't, yeah. yeah, that's you know, what, weird. What's the reveal at this point? Like, oh, by the way, I, I've actually married uh, someone completely different. Yeah. <laughs> it's like elements of both stories can be true, but they cannot both completely they be true. They can't everything yeah. be true. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the intention is definitely to get us, and it almost makes more sense from a, I don't know, metatextual perspective if it's not true, because it gets us thinking about, you know, there's kind of unfinished business between the Starks and the Targaryens. There's this kind of mm. unfinished, the marriage that could have been, something that could have been that's yeah. not ever been fulfilled, and then who knows, maybe it's fulfilled later. That's a very good point. Yeah, so it's this whole this whole promise and this fulfillment, and it might be we may have this kind of layering of you know we like to talk about and both books and show like to talk about. It's all in where you're standing, whether you're in the north or the south. So we talk about the north and the south of uh, contain south of the wall, right? The north is the north, but if you go beyond the wall, that's the real north, and that's where some of these parallels get even more interesting with the whole idea that there's a promise. Now, what do you think of the this very old theory that's been around for a long time that the whole concept of the prince that was promised or princess that was promised relates to some sort of pact, <laughs> again, the pact okay. between the first man and, and the uh, children, re relates to something like a, a promised marriage or sacrifice or something along those lines, some sort of person of royal blood being promised and perhaps... That's why the others have come back because they didn't. The promise was never fulfilled. It's an old. It's an old idea. Been around for a while, and I think this is the, the probably the best time to discuss it. So, uh, Nina, what do you think about all that? It's a lot to. It's a lot to talk you know, about. All this, but let's get I, you your, know, your, the, your uh, first thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> 
what I was what I was thinking in terms of the prince that was promised is, you know, the way I've always read that is kind of it's it's sort of promised like the the prophecy promises it that you know everything will be bad, but we promise things will be okay. <laughs> you know, we promise eventually someone will come to to fix when there's this kind of eschatological crisis happening. So that being said, you know, obviously. There is a thought, obviously there's some thought that it has to be someone of House Targaryen. So you know, there's some some thought that there is importance to the bloodline of this person. So to the extent that a marriage itself was promised as well, I mean, that's kind of a give and go going with anything of royal blood. So right on. Yeah, that's uh, that's well said. Okay, so uh, yeah, the it's, it's great because there's so many of these, there's so many references to royal blood having power and promises, and yeah, it's really juicy theorizing territory, and the parallels are unmistakable, I think, and there's quite a few of them. So um, even, I mean, even this whole term, the hour of the wolf, to me, sounds like a very similar phrase to A Time for Wolves, which was the original planned book seven oh, yeah. title, right? I mean, he decided that, title was too spoilery it gives away to was like yeah the starks are going to come back and have a win <laughs> sorry yeah so he <laughs> changed it to a dream for spring which still kind of sounds like a win but that does sound more bittersweet because it's like a dream of spring it doesn't mean we actually get it so anyway but that's also getting ahead of ourselves speaking of winter <laughs> and uh the lack of spring this campaign this northern commitment kind of plays out in two ways. Cregan stays in the north for a good two more years while winter continues to rage and he gathers up his troops. But a pretty substantial amount of soldiers, I think it's about 8,000, led by Roderick Dustin, called the Winter Wolves, head south immediately. So there is a, a northern contribution right off the, uh, off the bat. And these are mostly older men. Uh, these are the... The guys who were even more ready to die than <laughs> the Second Sons and and other crazy Northerners. It's kind of like what we see in Game of Thrones, where Rob has rushes south without his full strength because he doesn't have time to wait for everybody. And we find out later there's quite a few more men in the North if he had had the time. And again, it's these men that we're talking about, the Norries. Uh, you you mentioned that's his former wife, Cregan, after she dies. Uh, that's those are the hill clans. Those are the ones that stay behind from Rob because he doesn't have time to get them. It makes sense that Cregan would not leave them out <laughs> because he's married to them. Yeah. Uh, so Nina, yeah, what do you think about this whole marshaling process? Is it more of a quick question? What do you think about this marshaling process? And what do you think some of these difficulties were for having to do that during this this really crazy winter? Well, and, and that's that's the thing because winter winter officially arrives in the middle of the Dance of Dragons. So even before that, you have to expect that the North was kind of getting into preparing for winter mode. You know, we don't know. I don't know that we know exactly how long the autumn was before this, but or or even the summer before that. But how much time the Starks and the whole of the North actually had to prepare for this? You know, now Cregan is thinking if he's meeting with the Harris in late autumn, he's thinking in the back of his mind. Now I have to, and you know, this is kind of getting a little uh, ahead, but the the Pact of Ice and Fire is a speculative game for the Starks because they're not getting this marriage until years and years and years in the future, if if ever, which obviously it doesn't happen. But Cregan has to marshal men today for it. He's mm. have to fight, you know, obviously he doesn't leave for a couple of years, but the Dance of Dragons is happening right now. So he has to gather his men, he has to provision them, he has to provide gold for them. And he's thinking in the back of his mind, you know, 
winter winter is coming slash winter is here i have Mm -hmm. to make sure that the north can survive and has enough to survive so that when i take even if i take the second sons even if i take the kind of lesser men they've still got to survive there's got to be enough for everybody to, to continue surviving so i can see why he kind of waited and stayed back and Roderick Dustin as well is farther to the south physically. So he's he's a little more able to kind of say, all right, I'm going to gather kind of my my local graybeards or sort of the local, mm-hmm. the more immediate force <laughs> of the south versus Cregan, who has to kind of reach all of the tendrils of the north and gather everyone to, to kind of come south. And like you said, of course, because of winter mix, it's longer for the messages to get to these places, longer for them to mm-hmm. respond and, and march and then takes longer to get there. But yeah, it's, it's a good point about... Um, about the the location of Barrington too, that makes a difference. It's kind of neat to think about this. Like, it's a w- really odd mindset to get into. But if you're trying to think about how these Northerners behave, <laughs> it's like they're ex- they grow up expecting maybe to just die in winter, and they're like, oh, actually, we get a chance to die in battle. Heck yeah, that's so much better. They're like excited. This is this is like counts as like getting lucky. <laughs> this is this is luck for the Northerners. Okay, so let's move on to the next phase here. That's some good setup for the Pact of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. Now we get into a little bit of the action uh, on the, in the south that leads to the Hour of the Wolf. We have the, the northern action. We have the southern action. Of course, between all this, the Dance of the Dragons actually plays out. We're obviously skipping over all of the main action of the dance. We're skipping over the Winter Wolves being really brave, but getting essentially entirely wiped out. Like, really brave, but also, yeah, they accomplished their mission of dying in the south pretty uh, bravely, pretty eff- effectively. That story of Roderick <laughs> Dustin fighting those high towers is, is like is crazy, like wow! But it's it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Got it. Earned that nickname. <laughs> he did, yes, Roddy the Ruin, indeed. Uh, fighting with a missing arm, yeah, you're, that does seem like a ruined man, yeah. But he, but he went out like a badass. So to layer on the parallel names, the the main thematic Song of Ice and Fire type names, we have the False Dawn. I mean. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's that's another one that's just right on the nose there. Pact of Ice and Fire, False Dawn, yeah, Hour of the Wolf. These are just, the, the subtext here is really powerful. So what's happening with the False Dawn is we have this Riverlord host defeats Boros Baratheon's army at the Battle of the King's Road, which is nicknamed the Muddy Mess. All these, Nick, all these battles have like, great official names and great nicknames it's cool mm-hmm. we have like what is it the fish feed was that other one and the, oh uh, yeah that's the uh, the battle by the lake shore yeah <laughs> so many great battle nicknames and we have you know with uh, speaking of names and and uh, outstanding names we have the Muppet Tully's getting involved here, which it's just really hard to take them seriously. <laughs> well, he, really, he really doubles down in Fire and Blood with the Muppet because he doesn't just add Oscar Tully. He also <laughs> emphasizes that Kermit was Kermit Tully was green as summer grass and Oscar was even greener. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's just he. Yeah, because people. That came up, obviously, in World of Ice and Fire, and people were like, what? And so he's like, no, we're going more. (laughs) We're going more Muppets. (laughs) 200% Muppets. 200%. So right after this battle ends, which is a victory for the Riverlanders, or the combined Riverlands force, which is, you know, they're on the side of the Blacks, the Greens are not done, but they have no armies anywhere near yeah, but but for some reason, Aegon the Second is like, yeah, no, so <laughs> so what that all my armies are gone? Basically, go cut my brother's ear off, and they're like, well, 
actually, maybe you should surrender. Maybe you should take the black, brah. And he's like, <laughs> no, cut my brother's ear off. And so they poison him. And they him. sort of dismember Bela in the process. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's not forget about And also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, let's let's kill some other cousins or maim some other cousins while we're at it. So it's interesting because we have the sea snake and the, uh, the, what's his face? The clubfoot, who... Both of them switch sides multiple times, but the sea snake does it for kind of good reasons, whereas the clubfoot does it for kind of who knows why. He's just a real mystery. But from Cregan's point of view, he doesn't have our all of our information where the sea snake seems to have good reasons for changing sides. He just says, sees this guy as a, has a name like sea snake and he changes sides a lot. So that seems pretty straightforward to him. He's like, no, this guy is, this guy is dishonest. Like he, he can't be trusted. But... Nevertheless, Aegon II is dead. They poison him and they have to, you know, do a, do a few other arrests and clean up because of the other members of his faction. But basically, they're trying to present it as the Greens are done. And we'll, we have a quote here. Um, I'll read this here. The corpse of King Aegon II was consigned to the flames in the hopes that all the ills and hatreds of his reign might be burned away with his remains. Thousands climbed Aegon's high hill to hear Prince Aegon proclaim that peace was at hand. A lavish coronation was planned for the boy to be followed by his wedding to the Princess Jehera. A cloud of ravens rose from the Red Keep, summoning the poisoned king's remaining loyalists in Old Town, the Reach, Cashley Rock, and Storm's End to King's Landing to do homage to their new monarch. Safe conducts were given, full pardons promised. The realm's new rulers found themselves divided on the question of what to do with the Dowager Queen Alicent, but elsewise all seemed in accord and good fellowship reigned for the best part of a fortnight. And then Cregan's like, no. <laughs> None of that's going to happen if I have any say of it, except for the whole new king. He was okay with the new king bit, but the rest he's like, full pardons? Uh-uh. I don't think so. He's against a lot of this. He's against this in accord. And, and he has a point, I think. It, it, they were a little premature. The high towers were still active, basically, and there were apparently some other unnamed lords that were still flying Aegon's golden banner. So maybe maybe Cregan has a bit of a point here. Corliss was like, no, anything. Peace at all costs. Which, you know, peace at all costs is kind of a noble position to take. But maybe the war wasn't truly done. What do you think, Nina? Was was Corliss being a little premature? Or was that the right attitude to take? Or was did Cregan have the right of it? Well, I think that Corliss throughout the dance, you know, whether he was backing Rhaenyra or whether, you know, when he had switched over to Aegon II, Corliss's point was really, you know, once we've kind of, once it's kind of been established that we're, we're on the winning side, let's talk about peace. Let's, let's end it. Let's end, let's end the hostilities. You know, we see this when he's counseling Rhaenyra, when she takes King's Landing, what he advises her to do, you know, offer pardons to the Baratheons, often pardon, pardons to the Hightowers, often pardons to the Lannisters. And, you know, as long as they're, uh, as long as they bend the knee to you, say everything is done, marry Aegon and Jahera, everything is, is done. Rhaenyra says, absolutely not. My brothers are still in the field. I'm not going to give this up until, you know, they are all dead. We know what happens to Rhaenyra, but eventually Corlys switches sides. He supports Aegon II, and he says the same thing to him. He says, look, you've got these armies coming. You've got every side is against you, basically. You have no army anymore. You have to, the best thing for you to do is to offer a general pardon to anyone who's sort of supporting the Black faction. You know, make Aegon your heir, marry him to Jahera. It's It's about peace. He's not wrong. You know, the the realm had suffered very grievously during the dance. And, you know, as we see under Aegon III, it takes a very, very, very long time for the realm to recover for this. So, mm-hmm. 
Thomas isn't wrong to want peace, and he's not wrong to want peace as soon as he can get it. That being said, and, you know, it, it looks very dominant that you've got this Riverlord force who's obviously supporting Rhaenyra and now Aegon III. You've got the Vale force who's coming in with, with Leowin and Corwin Corbray. They're obviously supporting Aegon III. So it, it looks very dominating in terms of, of Blacksport. And obviously you've got Alan Valerian out at Driftmark with, with his ships. But as, as you pointed out, Lionel Hightower, when he gets the offer, says, absolutely not. I'm not making peace. You killed my father. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to hold out. He can't, Corliss can't know this at this point. You know, he can't know the feelings of Johanna Lannister and Alenda Baratheon, which we'll get into. But for all he knows, they could very easily say, you killed our husbands. We are not going to surrender. And Alenda still has Gehera at Storm's End, so he could very easily set her up as sort of the queen in Storm's End. And what are you going to do? Take Storm's End? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it is a good sentiment to want peace, and I think Corliss is ultimately kind of proved right. But at the same time, I think, I think what Cregan did was kind of necessary in terms of, you know, we really need to hammer out a, a lasting piece rather than a kind of illusory piece. Yeah, so it's not so, so I think some people say that Cregan was maybe being a little warlike, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, he was being warlike, but it wasn't just like the the northerners like they want to come down and die. It wasn't that simple. They sure they they did want to come down and die, but they but Cregan's in the right at least partly that yeah, a, a, a lasting peace is a good thing, but a piece, a fake peace is no good. So, yeah, it's it's a tricky kind of balance. Good point. You know, what's what's the quote from a Game of Thrones? It's it's no it's no use kind of hammering your sword into a plowshare if you're going to hammer it back into the sword tomorrow. Yes, very, very true. Yeah, that's 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 a great point. And a good, uh, good reference there. OK, so let's talk about why Cregan came south. There's a couple of more obvious reasons, but there's probably some. Other motives as well. And we're going to also talk about these characters that you mentioned, Elenda and Johanna and uh, some of the others as well um, in just a minute, too. So we've got a lot of these characters profiled for today. Like you said earlier, the pact was not... Cregan wasn't getting his part of, of the deal right away. In fact, it was uh, maybe not deliverable because we're talking about a kid that hadn't even been born yet. And, oh, two parents who weren't even married at that point. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, it's really, like you said, speculative is the perfect word for that. It's it's a, it's a promise, but it isn't a promise that can necessarily be kept because they can't control all the elements of it. So, on the surface, how familiar does this sound? A Stark Lord coming down from the north to be Hand of the King uh, with one of his main motivations being to... Uh, figure out the what happened with regards to a certain poisoning. <laughs> now, in one case, it's in this case, it's the poisoning of a king. In Ned Stark's case, it was the poisoning of the hand of the king. But you got a lot of f familiar things there. Now, Ned and Cregan are pretty different in a lot of ways, but they're both not exactly what you would call politically savvy, or at least politically like in their element. Politics isn't their element. Being at court mm -hmm. is not their natural preferred place. Cregan got, got out of there as fast as he could. Ned didn't want to go in the first place. Remember, book and show kind of confused us sometimes. But in the books, Ned's like, uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but he also figured it was his only way to figure out what happened to John Aaron. If he didn't go, he was never going to learn that. Uh, as it turns out, he still didn't ever learn that. But <laughs> he went to his grave with the wrong impression on that regard. But uh, Cregan didn't. Cregan really pr seems to have 
gotten the right story as to who poisoned Aegon <laughs> the second. Although he really cast kind of a wide net there, I think. Uh, Absolutely. He really had a lot of people executed or whatever done to them, punished for this. Where and and I think um, I think he was a little unfair. Some of his judgments were a little arbitrary, but but that's uh, up for debate. Now, now there's as far as other reasons why he came down. Of course, to make sure this promise was fulfilled, he still couldn't make that happen right away because obviously, as we said, all the elements weren't in place yet. But he probably slash maybe wanted to, you know, remind them of that and keep that promise in, you know, in everybody's mind so that it would not be forgotten later. And if they all get the idea that he's a big, tough, mean guy, well, that's going to make them a lot less likely to break a promise to him, right? It just kind of think of who they're dealing with here. He, they, he establishes who he is. So I think there's a lot of importance there. But... The stated goal is high treason was committed. Poisoning the king is wrong. What do you think of that? I think to me, Nina, him making such a big deal out of poisoning the king is a little kind of suspicious to me. Because I I don't know about you, but I thought a lot of his judgments were a little arbitrary. And because some of them were arbitrary, it might mean that there were some ulterior motives in play here. What do you you think about that? Well, I think, think, again, I, I see him... It's not, it's not a one-for-one one parallel, but I think that he was, I think we can see a lot of, a little bit of Shades of Stannis in there um, with, with Cregan. And I think with Cregan, even though he's obviously thinking, you know, he's obviously kind of a, a pro-Black supporter and he's supporting Aegon III, I think he has this very solid idea in his mind that, like, you don't, you don't poison the king. You don't, <laughs> you don't do that. I don't care, you know, if he, if it were a battle, sure, I would, I would kill him myself. But poison, that's, that's a Craven's way to go. That's a, that's an underhanded way to go. I think that really offended him. Um, the, you know, yeah, he was a usurper and yeah, he was fighting for the wrong side, but he was still a crowned and anointed king. You don't, you don't poison him. So I think that was something that, I think his initial reason for coming south, uh, well, you know, Gildane talks about this, that Cregan and his men were kind of looking, not necessarily to die, but they were looking to kind of bring battle and they didn't particularly mind if they died because, you know, when <laughs> winter is here, that's what you do. If, if winter is in the north and there's, and there's hardship in the north, you go south and you try, you know, you try and find battle and if you die in battle well it's a better death than starvation so i don't think cregan minded bringing battle but i think when he kind of came to king's landing and kind of realized like oh wait you're going to build this new regime on poisoning the old king and everyone's just kind of going to move past like that's fine no 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 no. we're going to take care of this right now before we do anything else yeah well said and to to back this up a little to get this kind of more color to this northern attitude it's you're right it's a lot of it is about i think if we could try to simplify it a little bit it's, it's about strength the north is yeah. have to be strong we talked about how the women have to be strong because there's no time for you know there's, it's all hands on deck situation it's be strong or die yeah. and so that's just kind of in the forefront of his mind at all times it's like that's how you prove that you're worthy of being king is by proving your strength so that's how you beat a king is by proving to everyone that he's not worthy of his throne because he's not strong enough. Poisoning him doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove he's not strong enough, even if that was already apparent, which I think was is kind of a counter-argument. It's like, look, it's already apparent that Aegon II was weak. He wasn't, you know, uh, a powerful king. He didn't have many armies anymore. But, you know, Cregan says it's still important that 
they go through the motions that honor is maintained for future kings and all that. But it's also kind of funny to me that he cares so much about an anointed king who was anointed in the seven. Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> under a religion he doesn't even follow. But to him, it's more about the principle and not about the, the, the religion and the gods behind it, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, and I think, I think again, the, you know, Cregan wants to see Aegon III on the Iron Throne. But I think there may have well been a concern in his mind that you're going to establish this regime on the poisoning of the old king and everyone just is going to kind of move past it. That's not a stable regime to kind of, that's not a stable foundation to build a regime on. Yeah. So when we ask this question, why did Cregan come south? I want to ask it again with the framework of thinking about parallels and how we talk about, well, what's the north and what's the south? And you think about beyond the wall as the real north. Well, think about why did the others come south? We're, we've been Ask, we've asked that question since the beginning. We've talked about reference promises and things like that. Is well, that a new joke? You know, why did the others go south? Why did, the <laughs> why did the others cross the wall? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, last episode, we did talk about how Sunfire, Mushroom called Sunfire, a great fire-breathing chicken. So we do already have some chickens <laughs> going on. Why did the chicken cross the narrow sea? or the, <laughs> the Zero sea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. You come up with, you come up with a punchline. It's a, your joke then. <laughs> so this this line makes me think of that uh especially the way it's written and and george of course as we know is often pretty careful with his writing and as nina has pointed out sometimes it's, it pays to be cautious because he does put red herrings in there and it feels like he's put more the more awareness george gets with how attentive the fandom is the more red herrings he's going to put in so i wonder if fire and blood is the most red herringy of all his work so far and if that's just going to keep in increasing as uh, until the end. I'm not sure. But and anyway, listen to this quote and think of it in terms of the others, like kind of transpose it, you know, farther north. Others had started this war. Okay, so it starts like that. <laughs> others had started this war, <laughs> Lord Cregan was heard to say, but he meant to finish it, to continue south and destroy all that remained of the Greens who had placed Aegon II on the Iron Throne and fought to keep him there. Just the idea of the Greens, right? It's like destroying nature and kind of like the others kind of just rampaging the green men. through. What's that? And the Green Men. Yeah, and the Green Men, that's right. And this is right along, you know, right near there the, with the uh, Isle of Faces not too far from King's Landing in the center of the continent there. And regarding the Pact of Ice and Fire again, Nina, we, we did some research, right? And we figured out that when was the pact first actually fulfillable? Well, so it's not actually, it's a little bit of a, of a hard question because we don't know exactly when Cregan, so Cregan, you know, getting, jumping a little bit ahead of ourselves, Cregan obviously marries Alison Blackwood, but after her, he marries Lynara Stark, has four sons and a, a daughter with her. It's not entirely clear when those sons were born. My kind of thinking about it is kind of mid-late 140s, maybe into the 150s, but that's just kind of a, a guess at this point. I feel the same way. I kind of think they were of an age with Rickon's daughters, and that's when I kind of assumed that Rickon's daughters were born, but who's to say at this point? In any event, we know that kind of... Aegon III doesn't have his first daughter, Dana, until, what, 145, I think? I think that's exactly right. So, yes. you know, it's, in that sense, Dana, you know, we're talking 20 years in the future that this is even a possibility. And yeah. a possibility of fulfilling a pact 
for people who were never even, you know, thought of in this pact. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, obviously he's not going to marry. By the time we're getting to Aegon III's children, Rickon is already probably happily married. So that's not a possibility. Maybe his son's by his third wife. But again, that's getting very, very kind of distant from when the pact was even formed. So it, it, it's kind of impossible to, to kind of fulfill at that point. Yeah, it may have been possible to fulfill in reverse, like the Stark sending a princess to the Targaryens, because as we know with Black Alley Blackwood, he has four daughters, and mm. we don't really know what happened to them. They presumably just married into other northern houses or something like that. He didn't have, so there was both both sides of this were difficult. That he didn't have a son, <laughs> and they didn't have daughters. So yeah, it just didn't just didn't work mm. out. You know, you compare it to Quentin in A Dance with Dragons. He's trying to fulfill the secret marriage pact between the the Martells and the Targaryens that was formed ten years ago between yeah. two people who aren't involved. Now imagine Cregan, who's trying to fulfill something twenty years old, made by a prince who's now dead for uh, <laughs> people who aren't involved. It, it, it's it's really hard to kind of enforce. The more kind of away from the language you get, the harder it is to kind of be to enforce that. Yeah, I definitely agree. So they kind of set themselves up a bit. I mean, Cregan, in a sense, maybe Cregan was kind of honor bound to do what he did. He had to take mm -hmm. a side and his father probably bent the knee to the blacks initially. So he was he probably felt that was his duty, but may as well try to get something out of the bargain. He may as well try to get some promises out of it. If he's going to say yes, eventually, he may as well try to get them to give something in return. That's one way I try. I look at it just in the different ways turning this over in my head. I thought maybe that was a possibility. Turning back to the Northerners themselves, a couple of things I noticed that were interesting. George is really intent on talking about this whole concept of the Northerners coming south and rather than dying in the snow. And that's something that we all wonder about in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, how that's going to happen, whether they're just going to be trapped up there or whether there's going to be migrations to the south and what that's going to mean. Are people migrating from the north fleeing the others? Are they going to also be bringing all sorts of diseases with them, like maybe grayscale, or at the very least, they're going to probably be starving, and there might be issues we're dealing with, you know, refugee populations, stuff like that. And so they won't all just be warriors pouring out of the north. That's going to be, that might be one major difference. But either way, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. And we wonder um, just how much strength the north is going to have left too. That's a good question. Because during the dance here, there's the North, you know, as far as we know, hadn't had any major wars to deal with. So they were relatively full strength. But here in Song of Ice and Fire, the North is heavily depleted and they're not done being depleted because there's still campaigning going on in the North. What, are, what do you think is some, some parallels we can draw with that in mind, given the, the vast difference in military strength between the two sides um, and the status of these men rather than, rather than coming out as a last way to die versus them being refugees? Uh, there's still some parallels there, but I guess there's some also important differences. What do you think about that? Well, well, it's interesting, too, because you see the kind of there's going to be sort of centers of where people are gathering. So we see this even in in the north in in A Dance with Dragons. We see people are gathering in White Harbor. You know, there's a lot of people who are coming here because it's because it's a large city or the only city in the north. It's got a lot of resources. It's got a lot of, you know, it's got more room and more people to take care of people uh, when when winter actually comes, which, of course, is going to be very bad on White Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> it's not designed to take care of that of no, that many people not. um so in an interesting way i think you know on the one hand we will see people kind of leaving and 
and kind of going away from from the others as, as they advance. On the other hand, I, I do wonder to what sense Winterfell will be kind of a, a heart or where people will gather um, mm. in terms of, you know, fighting. I don't know. I don't ascribe too much in terms of, you know, secret weapon under Winterfell, whatever. I, I don't I don't have a strong opinion on that. But I think that as a symbolic place and as a place where all the all the Starks would be looking to gather, I think that Winterfell could in in a way become a place where it's sort of a reverse migration that everyone's sort of leaving Winterfell <laughs> well, yes. in, during the dance, but everyone's kind of going to converge on Winterfell as sort of this base when when the others actually uh, actually arrive. And it makes so much sense, obviously, not just because it's the capital and the Stark's castle and all that. It's got the, the warmth, you know. In sure, it, so the, it, the natural yeah. hot springs are going to be a place. And of course, you know, it's it, a historical tradition as well. The Wintertown was established, has been established to help people during winter. You know, that's where people come so that they don't starve and die during winter. So there's another really big, uh, feels like the others type of moment here, if you look Mm -hmm. at it a certain way, which is that what we have here is this stark host that is bigger than anything else. There's one quote here, uh, how how people are kind of afraid of it, and it's described as savage. In fact, the word savage comes up quite a bit. I think it's like a maesterly bias, but anyway. Mm-hmm. A host twice as large as those the lads had led and with a fearsome repute. So the lads, meaning the army that they led after the muddy mess. So of course, it was an even larger army before their battle. But the, think of it this way. You've got this large, scary army coming out of the north and pretty much nobody else has an army anywhere nearby uh, because they've all killed each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How does that not is describe Game of Thrones perfectly? You've got the south just tearing itself apart in war and then here comes the others out of the north because mm-hmm. after everyone's shredded themselves it feels really similar to that so this part of why i just think it's just awesome and fun and uh we're looking looking it's, it makes it so worthwhile for hunting for more parallels um yeah whenever i see like one or two parallels it's like it's like what wait there's gotta be more it's a vein of parallels you just come <laughs> yes that's where there's where there's smoke there's fire and more parallels Ooh, special delivery for a shea look at that uh-huh, not for aziz <laughs> not for me see i don't get i don't I get steven's money oh, shut up <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, yes, Ashea gets a live milkshake delivery here because she's special. This is a smoothie. That's a smoothie? Oh, yeah, that's much better. I'm so smoothie. sorry. I, I, I have maligned your beverage. Yeah, I was like, what are you talking that's about? True. You, you, okay. do, you are far more likely to have a smoothie than a milkshake. Say, if there's a live true. milkshake delivery, I should be getting that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the we have also a mention of, it's always important whenever we're talking about the North and the South, the the, the connectors. The connectors between North and South are one of our favorite houses, the Manderleys. And they're not as poor, they're not portrayed as savages, and that's part of where this whole savage idea comes from a little bit. Like, people already kind of see the Northerners that way. But in the dance... A lot of what people see from the north is the Manderleys, especially in King's Landing. So that's kind of their image of the north. And then they get the Cregan and the the mountain clans and these re- quote unquote real northerners, and they're like, oh, that's <laughs> that's different. It says in their male shirts and shaggy fur cloaks, their features hidden behind thick tangles of beard, they swaggered through the city like so many armored bears. Armored bears, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And of course, again, this is where you have these this, this these comments of savages and talking about them worshiping trees, and they're just kind of walking all through King's Landing, doing whatever they want. And again, that's kind of seems like maybe that's going to happen with the uh, the the real the real real Northerners, <laughs> the ones beyond the wall. 
Uh, yeah, we also have even Damon Blackfire says that something like that, doesn't he? It's just a, it's kind of a recurring theme that also comes up in A Song of Ice and Fire, but isn't fully explored as like a problem, which is the 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 real when you're really getting to the weeds of what the South thinks of the North in terms of religion and vice versa. And they yeah. kind of make fun of each other, but it never. We don't have like a. We've never seen like someone like start a fist fight because of one guy <laughs> likes the old gods and the other guy's like, nah, the warrior, blah, you know, nah, the crone. <laughs> so it's not something that people like go get super bitter about, but I'm not sure that maybe maybe we're going to see more of that. I think I think there's going to be bound to be more religious upheaval and a song of ice and fire in, in the in um the winds of winter going forward as well. But yeah. I'm getting a little off topic here. <laughs> So LML asks, oh. uh, what would Ned do? In what would Cregan have oh, done Cregan in Ned's, Ned's position? position? I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Better, I think. Wouldn't have lost to Cersei, maybe. And that people had a, a bit of a chat about that in our chat oh, about Cregan in Ned's position. It's funny because Cregan's so much younger, too. And yes. I really do think he would have, He would have. I mean, literally killed it because um, he wouldn't have stood for any of that. Yeah, I agree. He would have told Robert. He would have, I don't know, he just would have had, I don't think he would have given Cersei an out. I, I kind of agree with that. On the other hand, it's important to remember not that Ned necessarily would have behaved differently if he had an army at his back. The Cregan had an army at his back. And that's a huge difference. Uh, I'm not sure that Ned would have like pushed pushed people around with his army, but Cregan did. And if Cregan didn't have an army, I think he not a pretty good chance he still would have behaved the same. It just seems like his personality. But it, we should keep that in mind. That yeah. He had an army at his back. You yeah. Know? It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So let's say thank you to our Blood Riders. That includes Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt. Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. And Kokabo the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip Gehenna. Christ we also would like to say thanks to the Ironborn Captains. That includes Black Matto Stormrider, captain of the Rusted Hinge. Oisan the Wanderer, captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvas Redblade of White Harbor, captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chucklaws, Captain of the Dromon Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromon armed with Siphons of Wildfire. Aileen, Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey, Captain of Widow's Blood, his heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. And Beneath the Gold, a podcast focusing on lesser-known Song of Ice and Fire characters. Check them out. Good show. If you have, uh, if you're going through Fire and Blood still, if you haven't finished it, or if you are intending on rereading but can't find the time, I recommend Audible. Uh, the the audiobook version of it is very strong. I like the uh, reader Simon Vance. He does a very solid job. And you can get two free downloads rather uh, by going to audible.com through our site History of Westeros and clicking on the link there on the right sidebar. You can get a free trial subscription. And like I said, you get two free downloads with that. And if you don't want to keep the subscription, you still get to keep those downloads. So it's a pretty uh, good deal. It's a no risk, decent chance for reward there. You might find out you really like it. I, I'm, of course, I'm a big fan of audiobooks myself. Uh, I love to do that stuff when I'm walking around doing chores, listening to audiobooks and podcasts makes all that, all that tedium a lot mm -hmm. more entertaining. Okay. That's that for our mid-roll and announcements. Let's mm -hmm. talk about some of these other Hour of the Wolf characters. There's, there's a lot of things going on around the realm. Of course, during the Hour of the Wolf, it isn't all this action at King's Landing. And a lot of these other they characters... They are all wolves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and a lot of these other characters are 
it's there. It's important what they're doing because it affects how they agree or disagree with what's happening in King's Landing. Their own political situations, of course, impact how they view Cregan and the Sea Snake and all these other characters. We'll start with Johanna Lannister, which... A new Lannister we found out about. Yeah, another mm-hmm. one. And, of course, not, similar spelling, but not the same as Joanna. This is yes, Johanna with Joanna. an H in there. Yes. <laughs> it's a, a, kind of along the same lines as all those different versions of Sarah. George is, uh, George likes to do that. It makes sense. You know, you got another one that comes up is Donald. Donald, Donald, Donald. Yeah, a lot of those. <laughs> but that's uh, that's pretty realistic. So she is the daughter of Lord Roland Westerling, who is the widow of Lord Jason and mother of Lord Lauren, another um, Lannister name that comes up from time to time, and sister-in-law of Tyland, who, of course, is going to be really important. I, I never, I've never heard you say that, I don't think, but like you say it like Tyland, so it just sounds like Thailand to me. <laughs> I've never thought of it. Thailand, <laughs> right <on>. Lannister. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. These things, it's funny how these things... Well, some of these words you see them written in and they're spoken they take on a whole different yeah. meaning because of the, yeah of course I mean, the, the biggest known one is, is damp hair and damp hair <laughs> true to everyone that, that is one is... of the biggest ones okay so Nina tell us about Johanna here this is uh, you've got yes. a lot of good notes on her <laughs> well I, I love Johanna Lannister so of course I've got good notes um, <laughs> you know what I really appreciate about Johanna so she Jason Lannister is killed at the Battle of the Red Fork um, Tylan Lannister is uh, in King's Landing, when Rhaenyra's forces, forces capture it, uh, he's blinded, mutilated, just really, really, really badly tortured, but left alive. And Johanna is left with uh, six children, five five daughters and, and her little son, who's I think four when all of this is, or four or six when all of this is happening with the Hour of the Wolf. And she's she's also dealing with Dalton Greyjoy because, of course, at the beginning of the Dance of Dragons, both the Greens and the Blacks had reached out to Dalton Greyjoy and said, you know, join our side. We'll give you whatever you want and, you know, just, you know, help us. And Dalton Grey, the Blacks said, you know, we don't need you on the other side of the continent. We just need you to kind of harry the Westerlands. And Dalton says, hey, that's that's great for me because... I'm a Greyjoy, and that's, that's what we do. So uh, Dalton took up for the Blacks, and he's been reading in in the Westerlands ever since. He sacks Lannispoor, and he attacks Fair Isle, and he attacks Case, and he's attacked all of these different places in the Westerlands. And Johanna is quite literally putting out these fires in the Westerlands for, for her little son. And what I think is really big about Johanna is that and obviously she gets this message from originally from Corlys Valerian and Ben Vene acknowledging the third. She could have very easily said, you know, Aegon the third, your government, your mother, your mother's forces killed my husband. Your mother's torturers completely mutilated my brother-in-law. You sipped the Greyjoys on me. I'm now having to deal with this. Why should I want to do anything for you? I shouldn't want to bend the knee to you at all all i don't want to have anything to do with you but johanna doesn't johanna says fine whatever you want i will give you back the gold that thailand you know put with us i will give you some of my daughters as hostages i will come and bend the knee i will do whatever you want just pardon thailand and just tell dalton Greyjoy to get the hell back to the iron islands because i need to deal with this what, what i think it's nice about this is that you know not all the time not uniformly but oftentimes we get the Lannisters portrayed as being kind of, you know, either villainous or cynically ambitious or cruel, cruel people. It's nice to have, even though she's a Lannister by marriage, it's nice to have an example of a Lannister who's 
actually cares about the Westerlands, who says, yeah. I'm going to put aside personal grievances. I'm going to put aside personal vengeances because the Westerlands need me more. They need my attention more than anything I want personally. Um, so I love Joanna. <laughs> yeah, she's really in a lot of ways. Just hearing you explain that, she's a lot, a lot of ways. She's the anti-Tywin in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah. Like she, because the main, um, one of the biggest things here that Tywin would not do, Tywin would probably do some of these things a little similar, like especially the the military stuff, he would probably be similarly aggressive about handling. But the pride issue, the idea of like setting aside his personal vengeance, no way. No. He would not, we know he would not do that. So that's a huge differentiator here. And it speaks to one of the things George gets at with the Hour of the Wolf, which that the women, these female leaders are really Better. vital. <laughs> and, <laughs> what you're going to that's what you're getting for yeah. you don't hear me disagreeing yeah, that's, that's right. what you're saying yeah yeah the women are the strong ones true that it's true like uh it's, it's it takes strength to set aside that anger and that need for vengeance that's hard like people yeah. say no that's a man's need for vengeance no that's weak yeah like needing like how many people have you know gotten into like a Facebook argument or a social media fight or just a regular face face this to face one, fight and argue. Right yeah, here. yeah, I do that. Not this one and right here. No, that's a personality <laughs> difference. That's not a gender difference. Part, no, but you know, it is how we're socialized. It's true. But like, um, like just wasting your time doing that and just realizing like, why did I waste my time doing that? You know, I, mean, I should have just swallowed my pride. You had and to just, bring down the fury of the gods onto them. Yeah. And it's just a, it's just a, yeah, it's a, a lot of it is socialization, and yeah, it's like a lot of times men are like, "No, we we respond by wanting to fight." That's not obviously it's not universal, but it's uh, it's it's common enough. So I think that's really neat here that we have these characters who have a different set of priorities, but they're not quite as powerful. But you you kind of say, "Wow, if they were in, in power, these things would be so much different, and probably a lot better in a lot of ways." Maybe not in all ways, but in yeah. a lot of ways, for sure. <laughs> so let's move on to the next one. The next character here, Alenda Baratheon. Also very interesting. Nina, tell us about her. So Alenda Baratheon is is the widow of Boros Baratheon. So we know we knew kind of during the dance that she had four daughters um, with him. You know, Boros leaves for King's Landing while she's pregnant. Boros dies uh, at the at the muddy mess. Forget how many days later it is. It's you know very very short amount of time later. Um, Alenda has a son that she you know. <laughs> I think it's funny that Boros suggests he be named after Aiken the second. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Nah, sorry, pal. <laughs> that's that's 100% a bad decision. Yeah. So, um, so she names him Oliver instead, which is kind of weird because it's supposed to be named after her father, but her father's Royce. So that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, it's <laughs> weird editing things of Fire and Blood, but she's she's regent for him, and of course, Alenda knows that she she hears about the the bunny and she sees the kind of stragglers coming back and she's smart enough to know that's all the army that I've got is is whoever stragglers are coming back from the muddy mess. I've got I've got nothing. I've got very strong walls, but I've got nothing else. I don't have an army at this point. And so when she gets this, you know, letter from Corliss of, you know, bend the knee, we'll offer you pardons, whatever, Alenda is willing. Alenda says, I'm I'm perfectly willing to do that because she knows if I continue this war, I've got a several day old son. This is not going to end <laughs> well for him. Yeah. I've got four daughters. This isn't going to end well for any of them. And, and you know, I don't know. The other thing, and I didn't write this down, but Boris was dealing with the Vulture King in the in the marches. I don't mm. know 
you know, the, the short side reign of Aegon II mentions that he had had victory over the Vulture King, but I don't know to what extent that was still a problem at this point. So one might have also been thinking, that's another fire I have to put out. I don't really have time to devote to continuing to push this cause that is very clearly dead. That's a good so point. So Alenda yeah. says, no, I, that's fine. I will send three of my daughters to you as hostages. I will give you Jahera to marry to... Um, Aegon the third and I will make my father do homage in my place since you know it's I'm still recovering mm-hmm. so again it, it's a way to say that I'm recognizing that this is kind of a lost cause I'm recognizing that keeping keeping this sake of vengeance open because again Alenda has every reason to say I'm still grieving for Boros I shouldn't even though no one should grieve for Boros uh, <laughs> <laughs> for Boris but she could very well say you know I don't need to I don't need to bend the knee to you you're you killed my husband I shouldn't I could very well crown Jahara myself and kind of set her up as a queen but she doesn't she says I'm willing to agree to peace so again we get these women who are very much focused on I'm willing to to have peace as long as you know it's it's an agreeable peace yeah yeah that's a that's yeah. a really good way to put it Real quick, um, so we're, we're about to talk about Samantha Tarly, and something Nina and I talked about well before this is the names, you know? Like, yeah. We love it when we get new names because it fills out the world and gives you more names to choose from, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But um, one, Alenda, we don't really see that much, so that's that's an interesting one. But it makes me think of Wenda, well, the White Fawn, which is yeah. another, you know, yeah. Stormlander name. So I like the, the um, consistency in an Enda name, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. But I was trying to think of if what other Enda names there were. It, it um, sounds... The uh, the first part Ella sounds makes me think of Lord of the Rings. Makes yeah, me think yeah. Of Elvis. Oh yeah, yeah. There's lots of yeah. There's Ella. There's there's other Ella variant names and Ellens and stuff like that. But I, yeah. I couldn't think of another Elenda. But then we get to the next character we're going to talk about is Samantha Tarly. Yeah, Samantha. Which, that really <laughs> took me out of the story. Of Who Samantha. is daughter of Donald? Which is another, yeah. like these are very very normal uh, yeah. like regular like western names samara or any <laughs> yeah. other so many variants of samantha you could have anyway so yeah it's, I yes. when i was reading fire and blood for the first time and they were talking about roderick's uh, roderick aaron's children they had like amanda aaron <laughs> <laughs> samantha and amanda george are you getting lazy with the names buddy <laughs> we're actually flipping through a baby book this time well, what, what happened was george is realizing that so many people are naming their kids after his characters <laughs> That he just wants to like give them some normal options. <laughs> He's like, well, now you can name your kid Amanda and still have it be a song of ice and fire. You can but, have it both no. ways. Uh, Lady Sam Tarley, though, is very awesome. Yeah, in this, oh, in yeah. our document here, it says she is awesome in <laughs> all caps. Yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Which is what I wrote. <laughs> yes. So since you wrote that, let's 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 have uh, you continue and tell us why she's so awesome. She is she is absolutely kick ass. So Sam Parley is um, Sam Parley. That's a, I <laughs> she's constantly called Lady Sam. Yeah, she's she constantly is. Yeah, called that's Lady awesome, Sam, Sam Tarley. Yeah, that was incredibly yes. intentional. Yeah. Uh, not that they share a lot of actual parallels in terms of personality, but yeah. she's a little braver, slightly braver, slightly slightly braver. <laughs> hey, um, we don't know what exploits Sam's going to get up to later. So. So far, so you're far. right. You're right. You're right. She hasn't um, killed any others, so <laughs> that we know. So, strike one against you, Lady Sam. <laughs> um, but no, she's she's the second wife of Ormond Hightower, which 
again, I just have to point out there are other ways that women can die. The first wife died in childbirth. <laughs> just saying, there just were other saying. ways you could have killed her off. We laugh anyway. to mask our pain. I've never heard of another way. <laughs> no, but yeah, as, as Izzy's mentioned, she's the daughter of Donald Tarley and Jane Rowan of Golden Grove, which are both, you know, black supporting houses. These are both houses that cited for Rhaenyra during the dance. So it's probably unsurprising that Lady Sam, you know, it's not entirely clear when she married uh, Lord Hightower, but it's it's not entirely surprising that if her father was someone who was saying Rhaenyra always had the right claim, if he was someone who maybe even bent the knee to her or his father did, that he'd be growing up with these ideas of, yeah, totally, Rhaenyra, awesome. But what we get, at least the account of Mushroom, which, you know, <laughs> it should always be prefaced like that. Lionel, Lionel Hightower, who we've mentioned, he's the he's the oldest son of Ormond by by his first wife. Uh, Lionel is allegedly infatuated with her. He's in, completely in love with Sam Tarley. Mushroom allows that, that Sam kind of put off his advances. She wouldn't kind of do anything with him while Ormond was alive. But, you know, once Ormond died, it was like, well, you know, <laughs> here, here you are. But Sam, Sam said, you know, I, I will agree to be with you but only if you agree to peace. Um, now, in Mushroom's version, it's it's Lady Sam saying, I don't want to lose another husband to war. I don't want to, you know, that would break my heart. I, I have to have you agree to peace. And Lionel was very, very adamant of continuing the war. I think the quote is like he ripped up the paper or something. He was very, <laughs> yeah. very adamant in terms of continuing this, but he agrees to peace. Now, Mushroom's version is because he agrees to it with, with Lady Sam. Monkin's version, which is kind of included in a footnote, is that Lionel may have been in, may have been uh, influenced by this, but he was also influenced by the fact that his youngest brother Garmond was a page at Highgarden at this mm. point, and that uh, he's, he's obviously foster- <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. He's obviously a foster. He's obviously being treated well. But the truth of any foster is that you are a hostage and that if something goes wrong, they can and will kill you. So I think the Munkin's argument is that Lionel was the trails had said, you know, don't don't raise a host. Don't go to war. You can't do anything without our leave. Lionel's fear was that, OK, if I continue and say, no, I'm going to fight for my dead father. I'm going to fight for the memory of Aegon the second. The trolls would say, all right, off with off with your head, Garment Hightower. <laughs> um probably the truth somewhere in the middle uh it's probable because we know for a fact that lionel kept sam as a paramour for six years Mm -hmm. because the high septon would not let them marry because this was considered incest yeah so Um, for for people just in case anyone forgets there's that amazing anecdote where she says the septon the high septon says you can't set foot in the high sept yeah and she so she rides a horse in there (laughs) so cool like yeah (laughs) i will say that that is also a very sam tarley kind of like like our sam tarley thing to do because he's always looking at loopholes that's like the words say this but you can do this smart Good point. Yeah. They're both very, very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's a good point. But truth probably somewhere in the middle in terms of, you know, being influenced by Sam Tarley while also thinking about Garmin Hightower's safety if if he raised another host. Mm. Um, Real quick, we got a couple of notes here. Super chat from Gregory Namuth who says, go Pens. Missing hockey for this way worth it. Well, thanks, Gregory. I wonder if uh, someday the North will invent hockey in Westeros. <laughs> and from Rebecca Santa, I just wanted to say hello to you both. Thanks, Rebecca. Hi back. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
Let's uh, let's move on to um, we've got a little around thirty minutes ish left. Uh, let's do our parallel lives here real quick mm-hmm. and have fun with that, and then we'll talk about Cregan's judgments and a bit of aftermath stuff. Like we said at the beginning, there are so many different ways George has spelled Sarah, and there's these fun pairings with these Sarahs. First, Sarah is Sarah Snow, who we mentioned earlier. That's the Cregan's half-sister who may have married Jacarius in secret. And then we have Sarah Stark with two R's, who is Cregan and Black Alley Blackwood's firstborn. So Cregan, I guess, liked to name his kids after his family members. He named his son after his father, and uh, this appears to be his first daughter named after his sister. But the perhaps more interesting parallel is something that Ashea and I and others have talked about many times is the parallels to Sarah, as in Illyrio's Sarah, to Viscera and Sarah Targaryen. And these parallels grew uh, with the telling of Fire and Blood. There were, there were several good parallels for that already, but now it, it became even stronger because we got more detail. So the really strong parallels between those two is that they're both end up in lease, although they're not from there. They both kind of go there. <laughs> we're not really sure about Sarah if she's a Blackfire. We're not really sure what her origin is, but she certainly wouldn't have originated in Lys. And of course, Sarah Targaryen, the daughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, ran off to Lys. Both of them became sex workers, and both of them ended up becoming really wealthy, so they were very good at it, and also apparently good at some other things, like maybe politics, intrigue, what have you. Whatever it was that got them to rise so high, they did it. So there's uh, interesting parallels there, uh, especially with their descendants, too, as we have potentially Sarah's descendant, young Griff, is making a claim for the throne. And last week, or was it last week or the week before, when we talked about different claimants for the Great Council, Nina... Yeah, it was your... uh, You had done the work on figuring out who all the claimants were, and of course, we three of those claimants were Sarah's children. And uh, two of them had you know, some descriptions in the third one. I guess we didn't get a strong description of it, but that was pretty cool. It's kind of like ties all that for full circle. Um, did I miss any of the parallels there? Was there any in between those guys that I missed or was there anything else to say about Sarah and Sarah? Not that I can think of. Okay, cool. All right, that's fine. That's a really cool little neat one there. I like that. Uh, I like that parallel. Good job on George's part. Let's move on to the actual judgments and some of these other characters that we haven't talked about yet. I don't know about you guys, but in my in my opinion, I think a lot of these judgments on Cregan's part are kind of arbitrary. I don't know that this was some of this didn't feel like justice to me. The way he just went after all the every single person that was even remotely connected to Aegon's litter, where he was poisoned, like the litter bearers. Like, what did they have to do with it? Ah, uh, I don't know. What yeah. What do you guys think about that? You think it was maybe a little heavy handed, or maybe it was necessary just to make justice. sure? What's that? I don't think it's justice. It could be necessary in his mind or as a, as the, the the smartest choice or whatever, the safest choice, but it doesn't make mm. it justice. Yeah, that's a good point. What do you think, Nina? Well, and the other interesting thing is, you know, for all of this is called the Hour of the Wolf, we don't actually get a lot of these judgments. You know, we don't see <laughs> sort of sorting through evidence or, you know, kind of holding trials. It's kind of the only really mention of that is we get, you know, him dismissing Eustace for lack of evidence, but everyone else is kind of treated as though they're already guilty. So is that maesterly bias? Is it that George R. Martin didn't want to take up pages with, you know, going through trials? Is it Cregan? Is it, you know, every somewhere in the middle? Who's to say? Yeah, it's kind of like Ned trying to track down John Aaron, uh, who killed John Aaron. It's not, it's, those chapters are kind of fun, but not be, 
but Ned is not good at being a detective. So they're not fun <laughs> for that reason. So you wonder if Cregan is also just like, this is why his judgments were so kind of arbitrary. It's because he also isn't that good at like investigations and such. He just like blames everyone just to make sure he gets the, <laughs> the culprit. <laughs> That's kind of what it feels like a little bit. Yeah, we were given the impression from the prior books uh, history books that Cregan executed a whole bunch of people, but we find out here that he only actually executes two people uh, because once one guy takes the black, they're all like, oh, we could do that? <laughs> <laughs> and so there are all but two people take the black, and I guess we have the maester who runs off, but one that kind of annoyed me was Sir Perkin the Flea, who gets pardoned and then is told, nah, you weren't pardoned by me. It's like, wait, what? You're executing these guys because they poisoned the king, but the king is the one who pardoned this guy. So how is that? Ah, see, that's just arbitrary, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and Orwile is arrested for not questioning who the poison was for, which also seems kind of sketchy. Like, maesters aren't supposed to question people, especially lords that ask them for things. So... I don't know. That's all. Mm -hmm. Even if he had questioned, what would it have mattered? He's like, well, who is this for? Oh, actually, never mind. In that case, since you're asking, <laughs> I don't want the poison <laughs> after all. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Nino? Let's get your take. You think this was a lot of this was kind of arbitrary or? Um... I think I think it was kind of I think Cregan was kind of trying to make a clean sweep. I think he was mm -hmm. trying to say, you know, I want the in part, I want this reign to be based on a completely kind of clean slate and anyone who could possibly be connected to this poisoning i've got to take them under consideration and find and you know ultimately find them guilty because if there's even one person who's outstanding later who's saying oh there is no justice there and then that becomes a problem later i can't have that mm -hmm. it's either complete 100 percent justice done or no justice done at all like it's you know i think that that's kind of how he approached it that's a good point and, it, and it, it ties in with what we had said before about his view on strength he's like well look if we had just beaten the king there would be no doubt there would be no argument post after the words or who was more worthy or whether this was done justly or honorably and so this is kind of to him this is like well because you guys poisoned the king this is all fallout from that this is necessary to correct your uh, dishonor. That, of course, that's his opinion, but uh, surely other people agreed, but many people did not. So let's talk about um, beyond Perkin the Flea, uh, who didn't really have a big role to play here. He was just uh, the first guy to, to realize that he could take the black, started that uh, whole train. Um, Larry Strong does not take the black, and he... Has an interesting quote, when was a wolf ever moved by words? Um, I think that's kind of an interesting quote. I don't know if there's a whole lot to read into it, but I, I feel like maybe there's something there that I haven't figured out. <laughs> what do you think? You guys think there's uh, anything to that? I mean, I think that Laris was, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting comparing, you know, I don't jump ahead too much, but it's interesting to compare Laris and, and Corliss's reaction because Laris doesn't offer any defense, but also doesn't admit to it. He just, he just kind of accepts that this is the judgment and figures there is no arguing with, with Cregan Stark. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just going to take whatever he does compared to Corliss, which is a completely different story. <laughs> yeah. Corliss is like, no, I did the right thing, man. He's like, cause he wants his mm -hmm. position to be seen is honorable i think he wants to he wants his position to be seen as look pushing for peace is the right thing to do like he was more of the attitude of a lot of these female characters we talked about who were who put peace first and honor and justice second which i think is 
when we're talking about world war, uh, that's not, a, I, I kind of agree, tend to agree. By um, the way, I mean, we've seen direwolves moved by words, right? Arya <laughs> and Sansa have commands for their, their direwolves. You know? <laughs> that's true. Wolves are commands, true. Yeah, technically, I just, you know. That's a good so. point. And also, if 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 he if Laris realized what we what we've described here, which is that Cregan's attitude is to just wipe this clean slate, then yes, arguing is definitely a waste of time. Cregan's going to do this no matter what. Um, there's no arguments going to change that because if he if he's going to pardon one guy, then he has to pardon everybody because that's that's the whole point of a clean slate. You can't pick and choose. It has to be everybody. But this is where Aegon the Third's words. Do move the wolf. <laughs> he says, I don't want Coralise killed. And, you know, he's like, well, I still, I'm still going to do it. And this is when Black Alley comes in. Thank you, Black Alley, <laughs> for not having Coralise killed. Yes, yes. Uh, we are grateful. Even though he didn't live much longer, it's still, we're mm. all still very happy with that, I think. Mm. Um, and Coralise, again, backing him up, he says... He says, defending his mission, that he would do the same thing again. He's like, yeah, I know, even though it's about to get me killed, no. that he stands by his his actions because right. peace is just that important. So I cool. think that's cool. The two people who don't take the black, we'll do that real quick, then we'll do Black Alley Blackwood, are Larry Strong and Giles Rosby. Now, Giles Rosby, to me, this is some this is some uh, Barristan shade here, I think, because uh, it's a similar situation where you've got these two regimes kind of, you've got this, this end of a long civil war, and Barristan is pardoned by Robert. But this attitude given in this chapter here is that a king shouldn't survive his, or I mean, a king's guard shouldn't survive his king. I guess it's also shade for Jamie, <laughs> even more shade for Jamie, really. But, but Giles Rosby's an older man, so that's to me it seems a little more like Barristan. And of course, Larry Strong is a little obviously Varus. I wonder if this is how Varus will meet his end. Uh, you know, just his time runs out and everybody, the game comes up for him. I don't know. What do you think? Is it is this Var a different end in line for Varus or? Varus is getting exploded. Varus <laughs> <laughs> is 100% getting exploded in my mind. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I, I would say I think it's more likely that he gets killed in an accident, like Nina's saying, than executed. Okay. okay. Yeah. Personally. I think that's. I, I tend to lean that way too, uh, especially because the guy who would execute him, it seems like the guy who's going to be able to preside over King's Landing before things get really bad is Aegon VI, and, and Varus is like helping him take the throne so i'm not sure he would have him killed so yeah that i i, I'm, I tend to agree with you guys i don't think we're gonna see varis end of the way laris does what about that weird line about cutting off his foot and magic feet <laughs> what's all that is so weird <laughs> unless we are to believe that all feet possession i was like uh okay it makes me think of varis again because of his, oh, his, yeah. his, his penis, penis right? you have being cut mm -hmm. off anyways just <laughs> it's uh, a it's a different member <laughs> yeah yeah no i i i read that as an intentional various parallel in terms of something being a, a body part being cut off and then being used for sorcery yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny yeah. yeah i agree that's that's pretty seems fairly straightforward anyway okay so black alley blackwood let's talk about her I was say, yeah. real, real quick, someone suggested a way for Varys to be killed they said giant spider kills Varys, but I'm just laughing at the idea of a giant ice spider actually being what kills him. Just that just is really good. Varys <laughs> killed by an ice spider. Oh man, that is good. That is really good. Okay, so uh, yes, Nina, Black Alley. Start with Black. Tell yes. us about Black Alley. I love Black Alley Blackwood. She is awesome. Yes. Um, Black Alley Blackwood. Uh, she's you know the the 
aunt of Bendicott Blackwood, and she's super kick-ass, commands her own archer. She's a super good archer herself. Um, and she fought. She fought herself in the <clears throat> Battle of the King's Road slash Muddy Mess. Um, and she's, you know, we hear first about Bela and Reyna Targaryen going to Aegon Third and saying, you should pardon Corlys Valerian because otherwise you would be sans one ear. Um, and Aegon says, I agree with you. But he has no weight. He doesn't actually have the executive power as a minor to be able to affect that. And so we get this scene and it's a little bit of a cheat because, you know, you imagine like who is who is the the scribe in the corner, like scribbling this hall down between <laughs> between Cregan and Allie. Like, I got to get this down. But it's really, really, really cute. You know, we've got the scene of, of Alisanne arguing with Cregan as to why Corliss should be pardoned. And every time Alisanne offers an argument, Cregan's like, nope, I'm going to kill him. You know, it's it's what needs to be done. This is what I'm going to do. And finally, Alisanne's like, fine, I will give you whatever you want. He's like, well, whatever you want. What could that possibly mean? And uh, she, you know, agrees to give him her hand in marriage. There's a very, very cute little play they have with that and he does agree whether this is the only thing that actually moves him to pardoning corliss I, I i don't know that's certainly how it's presented that's certainly the romantic view of it uh i don't know that that was might have been like 90 percent, but i don't know if that was the full hundred percent of what was motivating him but it's certainly a really cute romantic story of it i agree and this is where i turn back to my comment about maesterly bias, you know, with all the descriptions <laughs> of them Northerns being savage. And I wonder if that's part of why Cregan seems so arbitrary to me, if they just kind of wrote him that way, the maesters just maybe a little biased towards him. Uh, because this is just even, this is even more arbitrary. I mean, I, I approve because again, I'm on the side of peace at just about any cost, but he just gives up all his, you know, principled positions because this woman's willing to marry him. <laughs> you know, he's like, no, war, honor, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're going to marry me? All right, I'm going home. Let's go. Let's get out of here. That changes everything. So to me, it's like, yes, I agree, but it also makes him kind of a hypocrite. But I still agree <laughs> that he should do it. So... Um, that being said, you know, with the other thing with, with Cregan pardoning him is, you know, I think part of it might have been as well that I think Cregan might have felt uh, Cregan might have felt a little bit unwilling in terms of uh, in terms of killing him simply because um, the you know everyone else he could kind of dismiss as just sort of associated with Aegon II or associated with the Greens, but Corlys Corlys was his wartime ally. Corlys was someone who was fighting for the same side. They were fighting for the same cause. They were both you know sort of these pro-black supporters and. Even though Cregan might have felt I'm doing the right thing, he's very explicitly admitted to killing the king. He said <laughs> he would do it again. And there's no, there's no black and there's no shades of gray here. It's very black and white. He's guilty. It's it, there's a little bit of reluctance of do I really like? Why am I killing my ally for killing my enemy? You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, you go, you go to kind of rob in, in a storm of swords when he has to kill Rickard Karstark. He knows it's the right thing to do. He knows it's the only just course he has, but he he's not happy about it. He's he's hard. He's really torn up about it. He's not happy at all because he knows. This guy's sons died fighting for me. This guy was my loyal supporter. They killed Lannisters. To paraphrase Alice Garstark, the whole point of the war was to kill Lannisters. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, how can I justify killing him? But it's the right thing to do. So I feel like Cregan might have felt that kind of reluctance. And then 
Egg in the third, and then Alison Blackwood kind of give him this out of, well, you could pardon him. And I think he's like, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I like it that way. Um, also, I think it's kind of kind of interesting to point out that there's they don't actually get to have their wedding for a while. They they do this agreement, and uh, they both have to go their separate ways for quite a while as as she leads. Um, what's it called? The what is the widow fairs? They yes. have this is a really interesting kind of setup for the future king of the north, northern uh, the kingdom of the north and Riverlands that's formed by Rob Stark. Is that you have this kind of additional backdrop filled out with Starks, rather not Stark, but Stark men marrying all these Riverlander widows who lost you know lost their husbands during all the fighting during the dance. So Ashea has some great yeah. art of. Uh, Cregan and Black Alley as well. This is from Fire and Blood, the two of them. them from Fire there. and Blood, which is really cool. Cregan looks older than twenty-one here, yeah. <laughs> or twenty-three, I guess at this point. This is after the dance, and Alley doesn't necessarily look like the description that's given of her. That looks more like a kind of a princessy, kind of courtly woman, and Alley's supposed to be kind of a tomboy. But whatever, uh, it's a good, it's it's good art, regardless of of uh, whether mm -hmm. those are perfectly uh, <laughs> faithful to the characterizations. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have uh, some art of Cregan and Black Alley from Naomi Makes Art, which uh, I think this is probably a little more faithful to Black Alley, but uh, and a, a much different take on Cregan, which I like. Um, I, I'm not, I can't say one is more accurate than the other for Cregan. I just like them both. So the actual marriage takes place in 230, or 132, rather, and they have a cool ceremony where we actually hear that young Rickon sings, which is a little unusual for a northern like heir to be a singer. But maybe I'm maybe I'm the, got the wrong impression about how the northerners see singing. They like to sing, right? They mm -hmm. sing for they love the bear and the maiden fair. <laughs> uh, so we have a couple a couple of other questions about um, before the aftermath. Um, one question that comes up is: Could Cregan or would Cregan have wanted to slash been able to stay in power? So, Nina, what do you think about that? Uh, well, Gildane seems to suggest that he could have. He seems to think that Cregan could have stayed in power for the whole of Aegon's regency. I definitely disagree with that. I don't think he could have stayed in power that long. Could he stay in power for a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe up to a year? Maybe. It, it, it's, it's hard to say because I, I think that it would have been very hard for Cregan to stay in power. You know, he's facing down now that kind of peace had been officially settled on. He was getting he has not only the Riverlord army in King's Landing, the Vale army in King's Landing, but now he's going to have all of these former Green supporters also kind of converging on King's Landing, uh, you know, ostensibly for Aegon III's coronation, but also to kind of snap up whatever governmental offices are, are available. All of them are going to have have this kind of southern bias against northerners and especially kind of one person keeping power over a the third you know this foreigners sort of thing this kind of cultural di culturally different person maintaining a, a secure hold on the king absolutely not maybe could have been on the council of regents maybe but uh, i think that uh, keeping the kind of power he had during the hour of the wolf absolutely not yeah, I tend to agree. I think, yeah, you're right. He could have, if he really forced the issue, he could have held out for a little while, but not for the long term. And yeah, and I don't think he seems to have had much reason to. As no. We, he wanted to go marry his new wife and it was still winter in the north. He, he said that's a major reason for him to leave and I believe him. 
I mean, uh, he stayed there so long in the first place because of that. And uh, he does seem to really take his duty seriously in that regard. And I'm guessing he wasn't a big fan of being in the South either. He's like, boy, this place sucks. <laughs> Y'all are just um, so slick and and uh, dishonest and all this stuff. I can't but, even yeah. wear my furs. Yeah. <laughs> I have all these furs and I can't wear a single one. <laughs> well, and also the, the effect that his own regency had on him. I don't think Cregan wanted to kind of be a part of that. He saw how negative oh. Bernard was when in terms of keeping power during his own regency. He might have thought, I don't want the temptation of that power i don't want to be a part of that i don't want anything i need to do i came to see justice done justice has been done it's time for me to leave that's a good way that's a good very good point yeah he didn't doesn't want to be a hypocrite he lived through that himself i, I didn't catch that and that explains maybe why he we did defer to the 10 year old king um because he went through a very similar yeah. thing himself great, absolutely great catch great catch <laughs> One of them, uh, going back to the widow fairs for just a minute, uh, one of the things that it did, according to the text, is, quote, revive worship of the old gods in the Riverlands. And House Tully and House Blackwood are mentioned specifically as getting the largest influx of northern husbands. And um, I think that's pretty neat. Uh, just yet more background to kind of explain this natural affinity that the Riverlands and the North have for each other. It gives them more of a connection ethnically. As well as we're told that the couple of sellsword companies form during this time. One of them fully northern. And uh, that's formed by, uh, what was his name, Mad Hal? Matt Hallis, uh, Hallis Hornwood, I think, is Mad Hal, and then Timothy Snow. Is the uh, company of the, is the Wolf Pack, oh, we have the Wolf Pack and the uh, the Stormbreakers was the other one? Yes, yeah, that's the one formed by Oscar Tully. That's right. So that's pretty cool. You got uh, other, basically, situations with soldiers who survived the war. They got to find something to do. A lot of them, of course, as we say, go to the Riverlands and establish new homes and get a chance to have a wife and a family. And a lot of other ones go off to mm. Essos to fight. And since the Stormbreakers, I wonder if any of these companies will turn up. I, I assume that these are pretty much all defunct. But maybe George will decide that one of these guys pops up in, uh, to Winds of Winter. Do you think maybe we'll see one of them? Or do you think well, they're all going to be? It's interesting to me because, you know, we got in the world of Ice and Fire. And to me, I took it as a, that it was a still extant company at this point. We got the Company of the Rose, which was specifically formed by Northerners who were not happy that Torin had bent the knee. So Northmen and allegedly Northwomen as well went abroad and, and formed this Company of the Rose. But instead of actually joining the Company of the Rose or, or mentioning that, you know, Hal Hornwood and Timothy Snow just formed their own company instead. I don't know, maybe it was the Company of the Rose had become kind of too associate at that point. I mean, we're mm. talking a good sense almost century and a half after this had been formed so yeah. it could be that they no longer really spoke the common tongue no longer really worshiped the old gods really were more kind of associated with lingering northern traits rather than an actually northern company could be that george simply forgot about it <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is entirely possible you never know you never um, know <laughs> but i would like i would like especially because we do have a couple of different pov's in Essos at this point, it would be nice if we got one or one or two kind of offhand mentions of, of some of these companies. Or cool. even even in Dunkin' Egg. I mean, we're obviously going to be going to the disputed lands at some point there. It would be nice to get sort of a mention of that as well. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I do. Mm -hmm. I, I also agree with you that the disputed lands, our best chance to see them is through Dunkin' Egg at some point in the future. Okay, a couple of the wrap-up questions. We have a question from Broken King, who's asked a question for you, Nina. We just Ooh. wanted to ask you, no pressure, when <laughs> we will get your take on Egg on the Third. Can't wait. 
<laughs> well, thank you, first of all. Um, I am very, very, very slowly making my way through Fire and Blood. Um, I am doing, on my Tumblr, I've done different different posts on each of the chapters and just kind of, you know, random bullet point thoughts on all of them. I've gotten up through the hooded hand at this point. I've, I, I know I've been really slow. I've had other things I've needed to do. Hopefully I can get that done soon ish. And that will, you know, those kind of chapters will, will sort of encompass my views on Aegon the third, whether or not I decided to write more about him. I think it's hard at this point. I think there's still, I mean, there's still over half of his life that we don't know about. So yeah. I, I think a, a full Aegon the third analysis will have to wait for fire and blood volume two, but I will get more thoughts as I go through the last kind of three or four chapters in, uh, in fire and blood. Yeah, and that's really cool, by the way, folks, just to consider. Um, we have, not only do we have more Egg on the Third coming, but Fire and Blood 2 will almost certainly have more Cregan, Stark. We maybe will find oh, yeah. out this this mysterious Cregan dueling Aemon the Dragon Knight event that happened, which was almost certainly a, a, a dual um, recreation, not some sort of earnest real battle for some Fight reason. Fight to the death. <laughs> yeah, well, and if it was, wow. <laughs> Then, uh, then we know what killed Cregan <laughs> because it, it wasn't what killed Aemon. And we also know that Aegon III had a good relationship with Cregan, at least as far as it seemed from a high-level view. Like, Aegon was, mm-hmm. never was able to fulfill the promise, as we know, but he did you know, give uh, heap honors on Cregan, as we're told. And Cregan ended up sending Rickon, his son, to fight in Aegon III's son's war, uh, which is Daron I, the young dragon, in conquering Dorne. Unfortunately, Rickon was killed very near the end of that war, and apparently that was a big deal in the north. It was a he was a really popular, and uh, it caused maybe a little bit of a succession issue, which is all in itself a great story, all part of the after aftermath that we have labeled here in our document. Of course, as we said, Black Alley and Cregan went on to have four daughters: Sarah, Alice, Rhea, and Mariah. And as also as I said, we don't really know what families those kids married into, and unfortunately, Black Alley died. Somewhere, we don't know when, but Cregan remarried, had a, a third wife named uh, Lenara, and Lenara, she was a Stark, and, uh, right? She was a Stark, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he eventually united his branches of his family. Rickon, even though he died, had two daughters, uh, Sansa and Serena, and one of them, I think it was Serena, it doesn't matter, one of them married Jonal. Uh, which was one of his sons with Lara, or Lenara. I think Sansa married Donald, and I think Serena married Edric. Okay, yeah. And at first, Serena had married an Umber, and then that Umber died, I guess, and then she remarried her cousin. So, Stark cousin marriages, in effect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lots of them. But it also probably, it may have prevented a succession crisis, we're not sure. But I, I'm guessing that it helped. Anytime you unite the branches like that with a, with a big family, it's, it's often what they're trying to do is to prevent uh, war or at least mm. the, the possibility of war. Uh, and you, let's see, what else do we have here? I think that covers all our basic notes. I didn't, uh, there's a plenty of other things we could say about after, <laughs> after aftermath here, but we got to stop at some point. <laughs> <laughs> we can go till midnight. <laughs> we could, we, we definitely could, but we won't. Uh-huh. Um, so 
Uh, let's see, Nina, tell everybody, uh, again, remind everybody where to find you and remind everybody what you're working on next. And uh, yes. then we'll do our credits and say goodbye. So you can find me uh, on Tumblr, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's goodqueenally.tumblr.com. Um, I have written a whole heck of a lot on Fire and Blood. Um, if you search my tag for Fire and Blood Volume 1 specifically, um, that's everything I've written. Uh, if you search the tag Fire and Blood Chapter Analyses, those are the posts that I've been writing specifically about each of the chapters. Um, those are all of my thoughts. I'm very, very slowly getting through Fire and Blood. I'm slowly getting through my second Targaryen play. I am, uh, you know, every so often answering asks and writing posts and, you know, showing up occasionally in the Facebook group mm -hmm. to add thoughts. <laughs> right on, yeah. Um, it's true. You know, mostly on Tumblr. So, you know, cool. shoot me an ask if you want to. Yeah, you definitely know. do. She's she's very thorough with her answers. And I should say, and I have said, I'll say again, that a lot of the things you hear me say are influenced by Nina. I talk, very we, we much. chat on Facebook quite a bit about everything. Everything. Related. <laughs> from the, th even like some of the yeah. things that are too nerdy, even <laughs> for this, the, these live streams. Uh, really, I don't know. I don't really know about that, Aziz. But um, I will say we got uh, two comments here. One from John Del Vento, who asks Nina. Nina, do you have Patreon or PayPal? So, I don't. Do you I have do coffee not. or anything on your Tumblr? I know that on Tumblr, people are, they like the, vibes. <laughs> yeah, just good vibes. Okay. Uh, well, if you ever set up a Ko-Fi account, yes. we'll, we'll help We'll help share it around with people. And we have, like um, two, I have two other things here I want to bring up. One is uh, Nina has a lovely shirt on, a, a queen shirt. And I just wanted I to do. make sure I highlighted her great shirt. <laughs> um, this was this was plan C of this. <laughs> I couldn't find my Stark yeah. shirt. Uh, all of my David Bowie shirts are packed. So I settled on Queen. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. We also have here, um, Gregor. A lot of people were talking about jokes in the chat. And I don't remember how they got on it, um, but oh. we have this. Um, some Gregory Namath found a, and I tried to find the source for it. And I can't find out who exactly who originally came up with it. But someone came up with a joke for the a man walks into a brothel with a honeycomb and a you know, ass and oh. a donkey. So here, if, uh, so he asked that we share this joke as okay. well because I certainly really appreciate it. So I'll read this, okay? So this is Tyrion walking into a brothel, right? Okay. With a honeycomb and a donkey. <laughs> My woman found a genie in a bottle and he granted her three wishes. The first was for a house fit for a queen. So he gave her this damn honeycomb. The second wish was that she have the nicest ass in all the land. So he gave her this damn donkey. And the madam asks, what about the third wish? Tyrion goes, well, she asked the genie to make my cock hang down past my knee. The madam goes, That's, that one's not so bad, eh? Tyrion goes, I used to be six foot three. <laughs> So that's the joke, and I, I think it's pretty nice. I wish we knew who originally came up with it, but what would Tywin think of his son in that case? He's like, my son is six foot three and has his five foot long member. Is that something he would be proud of? No. <laughs> now that's a lion right there. <laughs> okay, folks. Um, thanks again for Nina for coming and sharing all these great thoughts with us. Thanks to Ashea for managing so many things at once. And thanks to our yeah, just, like Will Ferrell, like D'Angelo Vickers, yeah, D'Angelo Vickers in the office, exactly. <laughs> juggling without <laughs> juggling, without dropping a single one. Oh, I just caught one. <laughs> it was floating in the air for a while. Anchor <laughs> uh, uh, phrase is a very old joke, but it's a nice ASOF adaptation. That's what I was curious about because I was guessing that like someone took like a, a proven joke and then like adapted <laughs> a it. Proven. A proven <laughs> joke. A proven joke. <laughs> But I didn't 
no, I'm really for sure. I was, I'm glad to hear that. That's like Magor took wives of proven fertility. We need yeah, we mushroom need takes jokes, jokes proven, of proven humor. <laughs> jokes of proven humor. Jokes <laughs> Okay, so thanks again, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Who, <laughs> yeah, on that note, thanks to everybody who came live. Apparently, thanks to everybody for telling jokes in the chat today. Boy, yes. My FOMO is really peaking today. I yeah, really missed out on what was going on in the chat. So <laughs> we will be back, like I said, next week. Uh, should have By next week, we should have a final announcement on Blood Raven 3, the three-eyed Blood Raven, we're calling it. And uh, the, the, the topic for next week, since we changed it, I haven't announced yet, but we'll get that to you all shortly. So also, mm -hmm. thanks to our patrons who make History of Westeros possible. You guys are basically our sponsors. We do occasionally get a corporate sponsor, but that is uncommon for us, and we appreciate the support of fans far more because we know you guys love the material. And, you know, our sponsors are cool, but most of them aren't actually Game of Thrones fans, so, you know, you know how it is. Most of them actually are. A lot of them are. If they're, I mean, well, I mean, because if you're saying they're our sponsors, then yeah. Yeah, it is. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so thanks to Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, rider of Masla Cartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, Jinx of House Lier, the green queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Erogenia, a Sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Thanks to the mysterious BR Hand of the King, Thanks to the Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat, hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best, and who has gifts for you and not for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's the that's, 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 like, what? <laughs> Thanks to Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned, the holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance and Hand of the Beard. Thanks to Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fireblog, Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville, the cunning Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, uh, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, is Master of Coin. And, excuse me. <clears throat> and our Master of Whispers is Johan. <coughs> Boy, these names are making me cough today. The lords and ladies yeah. in their castles include Lady Dyer Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Belt is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Belt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Bread Fort. Alicia Everlasting is of the Greenblood, Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Shorts. Clear in Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise. I can only get through that one one out of every four times without making a mistake. <laughs> Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods. Uh, sworn to House Ironwarewood, listen for the silence. Uh, Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. 
Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Bluespring. Nevesa the Twinhearted is suspected skin changer as holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir Valentin of House to Jen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. The link is on our supporters page. Lady Leanna Kelly of Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrelsbane, the Mighty Direweenie. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. We have our uh, King's Guard, led by Lord Commander Miriam R., uh, backed up by Sir Dolorous D., longest tenured White Sword, Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight. And we have our Queen's Guard. Yes, we do. Uh, ready? Uh, I am ready. We have Lord Captain Commander Hema Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel. We have Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. You must be really excited for the new Dune, huh? Alexander of House Atreides. Oh, good point. Mm. Um, we've got Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Ser Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow, Rain. And we have Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. We've also gotten a super chat in this time from Gregory Nama, who says, thanks for the stream, guys. He's the one who submitted that joke. That's right. Thanks for the joke, too. (laughs) Yes. Excellent job there. And we have here. My Queen's High Council, Lady My Emerald Eyes, Voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow, Ca- Shadow Cat, In the Shadows We Bear Our Claws, Grandmaster and Elizabeth, Middle Daughter of Liana Mormont, First Lady to Forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link, and currently there are no masters or mistresses of coin or laws. I forgot to add Bloody no Ben laws. Blackwood to oh, you your did. Queen's High Council. He's oh. taken over as Master of Whispers. Oh, there's, oh I'm sorry then. I, it's oh, not, that's it's cool. not Lady Mai deserves an extra yeah, shout out. It's cool. Definitely does for sure. But <laughs> So what's this name? Bloody Ben Blackwood. Oh, cool. That's very fitting considering our mention of Black Alley Blackwood. That's perfect, right? So that, that's very nice. <laughs> right on. So also uh, the Beard Guard led by Lord Commander George the Golden backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound of Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red, and Brown, Stay Frosty. Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Queen Helena von Lanstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something. A kingdom for a drink. <laughs> and last but not least, the history of Westeros Night's Watch, which is led by Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the Silent Giant. <clears throat> uh, wielder of Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss. First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine is called Palewind, and first ranger Source Delica of House Gramercy rounds out the list. Thanks again, everybody, for supporting us on Patreon. You can uh, join the list of shoutouts by going to historyofwesteros.com and clicking on the Patreon link there. We include uh, other offers like early access to episodes, Patreon-only episodes, of which there are three right now. Our firstborn child. That's right. <laughs> episode voting. <laughs> And the aforementioned shout-outs. So, uh, all sorts of fun stuff like that. And I keep waiting to announce when we're going to start Season 8 coverage, but 
there still hasn't been a trailer. I guess yeah, we're probably just gonna have to make our own. Yeah, we, we, I'm all, yeah, maybe we have to decide that, but I feel like we get the trailer and then we're like, okay, we're covering it now. Yeah, that's so. That's it. That's the line. I don't know. Yeah, but it certainly won't it's be before go. March 12th. Yeah. Because that's absolutely. our Sea Snake episode, so. Um, It'll be after March 12th, which is just about perfect, because that's what we wanted, was about a month beforehand. Yeah, I think so. So, um, look out for that, um, but we'll just keep we'll just keep y'all posted. But if you guys see a trailer, well, you know that we'll have... Our coverage will be starting soon after that, but if not, <laughs> it'll be starting soon anyway. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thanks again, Nina, and thanks again, Shea, and everybody else who came. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the music. Thank you to my friend who... who brought me a smoothie, and not a Z's one. <laughs> He's just off screen. Hey, yes. thanks for the smoothie. <laughs> okay, everybody, we'll see you all next time. Valar, reread us. Adios.